Welcome to Equinox, where Rob and I are striking the balance between the light and the dark. This is episode 48. My name is Joseph Darnell, and I'm joined by the doctor on the show, Robert Carter. Hello, Rob. Hey, Joe. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. We had hamburgers tonight, cheeseburgers. And oh, you know, when you yum. get those cheeseburgers that smell and look like the product photos, <laughs> those cheeseburgers. <laughs> well, those are made of plastic, man. <laughs> well, they make those plastic hamburgers smell real good. Okay. You've seen those videos. Um, how do they stage food pictures? Oh, yes. Those are it's cool. Hysterical. Just, that's what you took a picture of? That's not actually food, but it looks like food. So it was cool. I like those. I think one of the weirdest is the use of glue in the cereal products for the <laughs> the milk, the supposed milk. It's pretty clever. Yeah, just a lot of it. Ew. I remember watching this guy not too long ago that was making a made-up commercial off of a YouTube video, and he wanted it to look like he was showing off some really expensive whiskey in a bottle and then pouring it into the glass with some ice. But he didn't want to use and waste the whiskey. So he watered down coffee and he poured that around and just made a great big mess and splattered it around and took slow motion photography. So it looked like the, you know, when he ca- you shine the light on it just right, it, oh, look at that gorgeous, beautiful whiskey. Yeah, that amber color. If you dilute dark brown down, it becomes amber brown. So yeah, wow. And I guess it's the tannins in the coffee that make it dark and it's the tannins in whiskey that gets absorbed from the oak barrels. That make it, you know, light, lightish dark. I hadn't thought about that relationship before. I, I just appeared to me. That's that's cool, man. I like that. So how are you doing? How is your beehive coming along? Well, my beehive, actually, I am very pleased with. I had some issues last week where I was in despair, but I have recovered. I've got my temperature and humidity sensors calibrated to one another. So I actually don't know what the temperature is, and I don't actually know what the humidity is. But I know that the two are giving me the same number under the same conditions. I ran them basically for 24 hours right next to each other. And I graphed temperature one versus temperature two and got a very straight line. Interesting. And I okay. graphed humidity one versus humidity two and got a very straight line, but it was offset by 3.5%. Huh. So if I want them to read the same, I have to take one of them and subtract 3.5%. And that was over a range of humidities. Do you have a reason to believe that the humidity inside of the hive would be different than the outside? Oh, it's going to be hugely different. It's already different. Even though there's no bees in there, just because it's insulated and there's only these little holes coming in, the humidity is different inside and outside the hive. Okay. It's it's much more even inside the hive. And the temperature is very different inside the hive. The temperature lags the outside temperatures of warming up and it lags it as it's cooling down. It doesn't have the same maximum temperature so far. But my mass measurement is a little wonky still. I wonder if the, t- the difference of the temperature going in and out of the hive could be a little bit of a shock to their system. Uh, I don't know. Huh. I don't think so. I, I, I honestly don't think so because the bees that are inside, they're always inside and they regulate well. And the foraging bees, I mean, they have to fly when it's cold and hot and, and moist and dry. So I think they just fly till they die. So maybe it is a shock, but what else can you do? Because if you're living in a big fat tree... You can have different temperature humidity inside a tree. Oh, yeah. So I don't know. And it also depends on which way the wind blows, how much shade you have, how much sun exposure. Yeah, yeah, all those things. But I've also got my my computer program, my monitoring program working very well. So every 30 minutes, it pops up a line on my screen. So right now on 3-11-2021 at 1930 hours, 
The temperature outside the hive is 19.00. The temperature inside the hive is 20.8. Of course, that's um, Celsius. Celsius. Mm -hmm. Humidity outside is 47.9%. Humidity inside is 39.6%. And the mass is 88.44.38. (laughs) The mass? Yes. Well, that's a... I have to run that number through an analog to digital converter, and it works out to be about 31.6 kilograms. Huh. Which is 2.2 pounds per kilogram. So 30, 60, uh, it's, a, it's nearly 70 pounds. Mm. Empty with no bees and no honey. Well, we don't want to tell the hive we don't want it to feel self-conscious about its weight. Yeah. But I'm, I'm happy. I've been working through this very methodically and very deliberately, and I haven't given up. And this is one of those projects where it just it worked because I was diligently and I pursued it. I diligently pursued it. Oh, yeah. That's not something that's true of all of my projects. Most of the things I do, I was like, oh, that was interesting. And I just stopped doing it once I learned enough about it. And so I've got, you know, thousands, not thousands, but I've got tons of half-finished projects. You know, like the, the warp drive sitting in the corner next to Robbie the robot. <laughs> Well, someone said that he wanted to give me their his 3D printer yesterday. It's like, oh, great, oh, another dear. project. <laughs> <laughs> hey, a 3D printed beehive. Um, yes, that honestly is is possible. But you could just foam print it or um, mold print it. It'd be so much faster and easier. If you're doing all the same things all the time, you just there's all sorts of ways. I mean, my dad worked as a um, an engineer for his career. And one of his specialties was injection molding, where they make plastic parts. Oh, yeah. And what you do is you take two stainless steel plates, and you carve the stainless steel face of the plate in the shape of your part, and then you, in both sides, and then you drive the plates together at incredibly high pressure, and then you inject through channels in that stainless steel molten plastic. And then when you pop the plates apart, you have little pins that push the plastic out, and they fall down to the bin beneath it, and you just make part after part after part after part after part. It's so much faster than 3D printing. Interesting. I mean, that's how they have to manufacture things in mass quantity. Yeah. I like these uh, figurines of toys uh, I grew up with. You remember when action figures were cool? Yeah. Um, I've always wondered, like, how do they mass produce these toys and all their intricate parts, all the plastic parts, and they have to to intricately lock together. Yes, it's probably all injection molding, and then you pay someone, you know, pennies per hour in a third world country to assemble the parts. Mm. You don't have such things come to be. Mm. Hey, I wanted to move on to the topic, but I was going to give you a little story. This is Joseph's yeah? Story Corner. So earlier today, uh, I ate hamburgers, which was to be remembered a highlight of this day. <laughs> March 11th, 2021. Okay. (laughs) And I felt so good about the hamburgers. I asked my wife if we wanted to take a walk and she said, yes. So we go outside and we're taking a walk and we are admiring our flowers on the Bradford pear trees. And uh, you and I actually were talking about that earlier and we discovered, I saw some bees out by those trees and they were, these trees are really beautiful. It's a white flower and it's very bushy. It's very round. I and hate I those trees. Four. Those trees are nasty. Okay, so those trees need to be cut down and thrown to. away. Just <laughs> <laughs> you're still in my thunder. Well, so when I moved to Atlanta, we had this Bradford tree a palooza 
And all of a sudden, the city planted like a million Bradford pear trees all over the city. And in the springtime, when they all bloomed at once, it was phenomenally beautiful. But I haven't seen this in years and years, but we had flocks of starlings that were literally horizon to horizon during the migratory season. And they would land in these pear trees and poop. And it stank. And if it ever rained (laughs) during this time... I mean, you couldn't breathe. The stench was so awful. I was like, ew, this is like, like gross. And the whole city stank for a day or two if it rained during migratory season. And then those trees, they're not very strong. And during snow and ice, they tend to rip apart. And so essentially, none of those trees are still alive from the 80s till today. They're all gone. So, okay, now well, tell your story. Except tell for the story. Bradford pears in my neighborhood. They're probably newly planted. So how long would it take for them to get to roughly fully grown size, maybe 15 years? Yeah, 10 years or so. Okay. And then 15 maybe, but I I don't know of any that are 20. Actually, no. There's a piece of property that I used to own, and it had what I thought was a wild pear tree on it. And I was very excited about it. But looking at it, it has big old thorns. It's like, wow, this is some rare you know, type of pear, or what is this? Uh, We're looking, looking, looking. Finds out it's a reproductive Bradford pear. Oh, okay. From a seed. They don't breed true to type. If you if you breed them, they come up with this giant gnarly thorn thing. I mean, with two inch long thorns. Really, it was a nasty tree. Yeah. So anyway, okay, wow. So now tell your story. Now that you know, I'm totally not a fan of these trees. <laughs> yeah. So before I knew that, when I was living my life in bliss, uh, <laughs> enjoying the dinner and digestion, step out of the door and go outside, and my wife and I are exiting the the driveway and we make a right and we go around the corner and we see other trees that are in bloom. There's some pink ones that are not the Bradford pear trees. And then there's the white ones and we have four of the Bradford pears. And then there's some other neighbors that have one and you know two over here and over there. Most of them fully grown. I think I saw one that looked like it was still kind of on the young side. But my wife brings up, do you smell that? And oh. I was like, yeah. Uh, and she goes, it smells like rotten eggs. Oh. And I'm like, well, does it, do you, do you think that that smells like rotten eggs? I, I know it's not pleasant. I would call it pungent, but it, rotten eggs? And she's like, yes, it's exactly what rotten eggs smell like. And Did you follow she the was scent? talking about the Bradford pears. Yeah. Sticky. And when you, you talk about birds all you want, but the stench is pretty awful. <laughs> yes. When, when is you that the just something that mix. happens when they're first in bloom? And Don't know. Is this like the sign of pollen to come, or is this the sign that pollen has sprung out of those flowers? Yeah, I'm not sure. Hmm. You know, another stinky tree is a, a male ginkgo, or the female ginkgo. I think it's the male ginkgo. We don't plant those. We plant the females, because the males stink. <laughs> pretty smart but it, it, it's kind of bad you know a beautiful tree that reeks yeah <laughs> I, I don't understand why you'd plant it oh because it's beautiful that's why because people stay inside and look out their window at their beautiful trees i guess but those trees are in the the apple pear family there's so many different species it's really it would be really hard to keep track of them all so it's just a pear tree that doesn't grow pears but gives you those beautiful flowers and Breaks. Yeah. Because it's very sad that it can't grow pears. Yes. Yeah, terrible. Well, then let's get into the main topic. We're going to talk yes. about those stinky trees. No, we're not talking about those stinky trees. We're talking about pollen. We're talking about palynology. 
the study of pollen. You wanted to bring this up because it relates to bees and it's kind of in season. In fact, uh, we're on the verge of the huge wave of pollen here. You mentioned last week that Georgia has a higher pollen index than anywhere else in the world on record. Uh, It's crazy. Well, when I lived in Rome in West Georgia, the four years I lived there, every year consecutively, we set the world record pollen count. Wow. And it wasn't by a little bit. It was by a lot. And it might be that that was when they first started measuring pollen. That probably is true. Hmm. But I just remembered the numbers just kept going up and up and up. How much of that would be man-made versus just the habitat itself? Lots of it. Really? Uh, In Atlanta, the Chinese elm in the fall is 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 becoming a problem for air quality, but it's not a native tree. It's a planted tree. So we've planted so many of them that they're literally making people have allergies and things like that because there's so much of the pollen in the air and it was never there before. Interesting. And plus the way we, um, we terraform the landscape, I guess you could say, native stuff is hard to find any place you have people. Even people that move out to Arizona because they have allergies, well, guess what? All these people plant things that don't grow in Arizona, and there's tons of allergies from the same things that they're trying to get away from. So we have a big big impact on it. Interesting. Crazy. Yeah. Well, then let's begin at the beginning. Like, okay. what in the world is pollen, and why? <laughs> well, plants are uh, sexual creatures, believe it or not. They uh, go through... Yeah, sec- see, I don't, I, don't ha- I don't see that happening. Uh, you know, Ma- I, I that macho yeah. tree over there and that, that sexy yeah. little shrub? <laughs> nope. It <laughs> doesn't happen. Well, they go through <laughs> sexual reproduction. So they have male parts and female parts. Where there is a will, there is a way. <laughs> this is true. And there are some plants that can self-fertilize, but most can't. There are some plants that have male and female parts on different trees. Most of them, though, have them on the same, the same flower. Sometimes they have male flowers and female flowers. But usually, in the same flower, you have the male parts and the female parts. And the male parts is the pollen. It comes off this thing. It's called an anther. Anther. And sometimes some plants are very prodigious. They just produce tons. I mean, did you see that? Um, I think it was just last year. Uh, some forest agency in Georgia was taking a video out of a helicopter where they're hovering over some pine trees. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I <laughs> think I may have seen that. Yeah. There's massive yellow clouds of pollen. Just mm-hmm. poof, poof, poof. Oh, man. That was amazing. But that is the, the male reproductive part of a flower. And it has to get to the female reproductive part. So it either floats through the air, or it's transported on bees, or it floats through water because there are flowering plants underwater. Seagrasses specifically. Seagrasses are actually grasses, and they have flowers underwater and pollen that floats through the water. Strange as it sounds. But that is incredible. I remember I learned that when I was in grad school. I was like, what? <laughs> This stuff I've been around all my life is actually a flowering plant. That's just that was just weird, totally weird. It is impressive. So I don't know how gross you want to get, but um, pollen is basically plant sperm. Uh, I can handle it. Go as okay. gross as you want to get. Now, I don't know if the the audience wants to think of that because we breathe it in all the time. Pollen has three distinct layers. On the innermost part, it's called a cytoplasmic layer, and there are several cells in there. So unlike animal uh, male parts, the plant male part is multicellular. What do you mean by multicellular? 
There's multiple cells inside of the pollen grain. The male part is composed of multiple cells. Mm. Animals, animal sperm is just one cell. So that would mean, what, what does that end up causing? Well, when the pollen lands on the, um, the female part of the flower and sticks to the flower, one of those cells starts growing a tube. In fact, Charles Darwin studied this, interestingly. The, uh, the tube will grow all the way down into the inner part of the flower. Usually there's a, a wide place at the base inside the flower petals. That's called the ovary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the pollen tube will grow all the way down to the ovary. And then the, the sperm nuclei, there could be one or two, will, it's a cell. It'll go down through the tube. So it's a very complicated little cool thing. Wow. Yeah. And that's, ha- that's, how, the, that's how the plants get fertilized. And that is why the bees are pollinating, cross-pollinating all those flowers. Yes, because without that, there's some flowers that, that without a bee, like, oh man, I'm thinking squash and uh, blueberries, and we the things we talked about in on one of our bee episodes. Without specific species of bees, these plants would not be able to propagate. Except the windblown pollen is fine, and that's usually what we're allergic to, is the small stuff that blows on the breeze. Because plants produce a lot of it, usually a lot more than they, they would if they were uh, pollinated by insects. Because with insects, it's pretty much guaranteed your pollen's going to go to another flower. But the windblown stuff is just prodigious and massive amounts of it, and plants just pump it out like crazy. <laughs> Incredible. That explains a lot of the clouds that we see. Another cool thing about pollen is that the outermost shell, so we have the cytoplasmic part with a couple cells, then we have a wall. There's an inner wall called the intine. See, now when you say shell, this stuff is like really fine and powdery. But are you saying like on that scale, it has something like a shell? Like stainless steel. <whistles> like iron. I mean, as hard as you can imagine, this stuff is tough. The outer shell, the exine, survives a lot of stuff. And we find it in the fossil record because of that. <laughs> That's incredible. Now, the inner parts are dissolved away and rotten away, but the shell is almost indestructible. Now, it, it is digestible by enzymes because it's made of, of uh, proteins and things like that. Um, and uh, cellulose, actually, it's mostly cellulose. But it lasts a long time. And we find it in the fossil record. And you can go study muds in a lake and look at pollen layers. And you can find pollen um, in all sorts of different places. One of the craziest ones, though, there's some pollen found in paleozoic rocks now in the evolutionary scheme it would be about 250 million years old but flowering plants supposedly didn't evolve into 130 million years ago in the cretaceous the time of the dinosaurs so there's a giant mystery where were plants the pollen appears first and then plants aren't there and plants aren't there and all of a sudden boom oh now we have flowering plants look at that (laughs) but i remember in graduate school being told that grasses didn't evolve until 30 million years ago that's almost modern. I mean, that's, you know, dinosaurs died out supposedly 65 million years ago. Right. So, but if grasses didn't evolve to 30 million years ago, which is crazy because grasses are found everywhere on Earth except the center of Antarctica. I mean, they're everywhere. Bamboo to whatever, you know, your stuff you cut in your, gra- in your lawn. Right. But when they started studying dinosaur dung, which that'd be a great, what do you do? I study dinosaur poop. Oh, that's a unique career. Yes, well, fossilized dinosaur dung, it's called coprolites, or fossilized dung is coprolite, and you can cut it, and you can polish it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, 
Why would you <laughs> do that, and, Rob? And then you can look at it <laughs> under a microscope. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. And you can see what the dinosaur had been eating. And when they started doing that, they realized that not only did grasses live with dinosaurs, but representatives of basically all the major families of grasses were being eaten and digested with dinosaurs. Whoops. But we don't find grass itself in the fossil record until way after the dinosaurs went extinct. <laughs> so the fossil record is fickle, and therefore I believe it's fickle with pollen also. But we do find some pollen unexplainably in very, very, very supposedly old rocks. So I'll let the evolutionists deal with that as they wish. But it's just really cool. Pollen is amazing. So then when you look at pollen, uh, can you distinguish all the varieties and know what plants they came from? So one of my goals that I had recently, I said, oh, this is going to be a great project. I know that bees in their pollen pouches on their legs, pollen baskets, they have different color pollen and they'll come back and they usually visit one type of plant at a time. So that pollen packet should be one species and there's different colors and different sizes. And I'm like, yeah, I should be able to take some of those pollen baskets and look at them under a microscope and identify them. And I was like, man, I could even collect a whole bunch and like maybe give them to some homeschool kid and let them do a project or something like that. That'd be really fun. But it turns out to be a whole lot harder than I thought. Oh, yeah? Well, first of all, um, I gave you a link on Wikipedia, list of yeah. pollen sources. Click on that link and open it up. Okay. I'm, looking, I'm scrolling the page. And, and scrolling. Oh, and you see wow. how many stripes there are. And they, they kind of tried to color them according to the color of the pollen. So gray yeah. is elm, but yellow is winged elm. And that Ooh. fire brick color is blackthorn. But pear trees are reddish yellow. But peach trees are reddish yellow, but a little different. And cherries are dark yellow, and olive is oak. And so, all these different colors, but they're all shades of the same. And when you scroll down... Yeah, so you would distinguish the pollens by their color and not much else? Well, if you knew what was blooming at that time only, you might get lucky. But what I realize is this is going to entail a very long time of study. And I didn't realize how hard it was going to be. Because just scrolling huh, down, okay. you have all these trees and shrubs. Right, yeah, yeah it's countless. And beneath that, flowers and annual crop plants. And who knows what someone's got planted in their garden, in their yard. And then trees and shrubs. Oh, and it's broken down into, into uh, spring, summer, and fall. And there's a variety of color. Yeah. Uh, some of them, there is a lot of, there's a lot of repeats like uh, pale yellow and bright yellow. Yeah. Yellow green. Cucumber and melons. Well, those are you know, pumpkin, pumpkin, and yeah. oh boy, so it's it's difficult. And even clover, I mean, you got totally different species of clover, and their pollen from that is the same color. Opium poppy, hey, there's opium poppy on here. <laughs> <laughs> I see it. Yeah, it's, yeah, the gray one, feral and ornamental. It says it's a very good source of. Oh, it's very good for honeybees. It says what is. The opium poppy. Really? It says that at the top column. No, officer, that's for my bees. <laughs> <laughs> and that's two away from smartweed. Uh, anyway, uh, uh, so there isn't something like a, a machine that can just take a cup or a uh, little oh. dish of oh. pollen and scan it. Yes, actually. Um, this oh, is okay. just recently invented. In the past, uh, click on... Um, Crimson Clover? discoverlife.org slash mp slash 20q. Ah. Click on that. 
let's just go through the, the basic shapes and types of pollen. So if you want to identify a plant based on its pollen, first of all, you have to sample the pollen while still on the plant. And you have to make a record of it. People have done that for a long time. But then you have to take it and stain it because most pollen, will, it won't, you won't see anything under a light microscope. You have to stain it to give it some color. Oh, and then you look okay. at it. And the first question is, what's the season? Second question is, when I'm looking at this pollen, does it look like one thing or two things stuck together or three things stuck together or eight things stuck together? Okay, yeah. And then you look at it and you say, okay, if I'm looking at just one of those units, do I see a, it's called a sulcus, a line or three lines or eight lines? You know what they look like under the microscope is like uh, precious minerals. They look like gems. Yes. They, there's I, some yes. that are intricately cut or they kind of look like, they remind me of imagine sea a sea creature that you wouldn't have, yeah. you may or may not have come across that reminded you of a sand dollar, but it's not yes, a sand exactly. dollar. Yes, exactly. Sand dollar sea urchins. That's what a lot of these things remind me yeah. of. Or just a bean. Okay, mm-hmm. And then you look, you look at other things and other things and other things and down and down and down and down. And then final question is, what's the size? Probably in micromet- micrometers or something like that. Just, so that's hard, man. Because first of all, you got to get a good image. And these are tiny. And things that are tiny are tedious to image properly. And so, in the past, a good palynologist would take probably about four hours to process a sample. And so, there's no way I'm going to be sampling every single different color of pollen coming in from my bees and trying to figure out what species that is. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just not interested. No. If it was easy and fast, <laughs> it would be not. fun and cool to do. We could probably do it with DNA, though. Oh, 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 oh. That gives me more reason to get a DNA sequencer. <laughs> I'm surprised you don't already have one. Well, me too, actually, honestly. And some one of my friends just sent me a link to a cheap one. It's like, oh man, I want that so bad. Um, last summer, I was working on a concept. There's this thing called DNA barcoding, which is just looking at one particular gene in the mitochondria that has a fast enough mutation rate that you can separate species. And it's just a sweet spot. It's just fast enough. It's not too slow and not too fast. And so if you like take a dog and a cat or a cat and a lion, or a, a black bear and a brown bear, and you sequence that gene itself, you can easily s- discriminate between species. And I said, wow, I want to get a, a homeschool kit where a kid, and it will teach them how to take notes, how to make predictions, chemistry, um, organization. And basically, they say, I'm going to sample every plant I find in my lawn or every type of bird feather that I can get my hands on. And they extract the DNA. And I, I, was, I was going through um, how to make your own DNA sequencer. See, a DNA sequencer. What do I need? Can I just do a homebrew DIY DNA sequencer? And I'm like, probably, but it's totally not worth it. Now, DNA sample prep is easy. But sequencing the DNA is not. I mean, it's routine now. Machines do it all the time. But making your own would be incredibly difficult. So... I said, nah, I, sh- I kind of shelved the idea. And then my next idea was, oh, I, we could still do a bunch of sampling, but then you send your sequences out to get sequenced. Yeah. But all of a sudden now- Then it's not as fun. Yeah, yeah you're, you're handing it off. Yeah. That's right. Not as fun. But now with pollen, hmm, yeah, I'm thinking again. But I should not think of this because it's too difficult. <laughs> <laughs> all right. The initial question was, how do you identify pollen? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
and someone has just invented a brand new machine using stuff they've used in biology all the time for for counting cells. It's it's called a flow cytometer. And in flow cytometry, what you do is you have a liquid flowing through a channel that's very narrow, and it flows past something that's counting. You might be passing light through your liquid. So when a cell goes through there, it makes it a little dim and a little machine go bing. And bing, 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 bing. Yeah. Or you might be looking at it under, under a microscope or whatever. There's some way to count the cells flowing through called flow cytometry. Uh, that's how they measure like red blood cell count, white blood cell count. So if you have, you have um, uh, what's a blood disease? It's escaping me. Well, there is a, a blood, there's like a cancer. Yeah, cancer of the white blood cells. What is that? Oh, so stupid. Man, I, I don't remember. <laughs> cancer of white Blood cells is so obvious. Leukemia. Silly me. Yeah. So, okay. yeah. My brain just couldn't go there. I'm stuck on pollen and bees. But okay. That's how they, <laughs> they would assess if you have leukemia or not. Well, what some enterprising group of scientists realized is that you could do the same for pollen. It's not easy. What they did was they take pollen, they dilute it in a liquid, some sort of a liquid. I don't know what it is. And they pass it through a tube that gets more and more narrow. And at its narrowest, it's moving very fast, but only one pollen grain at a time is passing a sensor. And they do multispectral imaging, where they flash light of all sorts of different colors, so fluorescent spectra and regular uh, light spectra. And they take all these images of a single pollen grain, and they took tens of thousands of images and threw them into an artificial intelligence algorithm. And they were able to train it to identify different species of pollen. Brilliant. And, and it's, it's fast, so like 20 minutes per sample. And it's incredibly accurate, over 95% accuracy. And some of the, the species that we can't even tell apart by eye, well, they might fluoresce different colors, or they might actually absorb or emit uh, or absorb or reflect different colors of light. Remember back a couple episodes ago, we talked about light, uh, how, the, yeah, how the eyes work last episode. Was that the last episode? No, that we talked about. How eyes work. The eyes have it. That was last week. Yeah. So if your eyeball can't tell the difference between yellow light and green plus red light, because it stimulates the cones in her eyes the same degree as if it's yellow. You could have shine two colors of light down and it looks yellow to us, or just yellow light and it also looks yellow. So our eyes can be deceived as far as color is concerned, but if you do multispectral imaging... You realize, oh, this yellow is actually not really yellow, or this yellow really is a yellow. And they can separate all these, these different types and species of trees. That's just amazing. And so I'm like, oh, yeah. I need to build a flow cytometer and, and get some artificial intelligence algorithms and do multispectral imaging. I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> so I think my dream of identifying pollen is actually going to die. And I'm sad mm. because I know those, those bees are coming in with different packets and you can see them and they have these things you can put on the front of a beehive where if a bee goes through it it'll it'll strip the pollen off of its legs whoa that's that's how they oh, make yeah. you ever you ever buy pollen in a in a jar for from a health food store right that's yeah. how they make that i took that once and my nose swelled up so bad i couldn't believe it i mean <laughs> i was like what on earth i can't even breathe oh my goodness so i i never yeah. tried it again i don't know what brand it was and i don't know what was in it but it i definitely swelled up prodigiously after i tried that <laughs> it just sounds like a very bad idea like just take a fistful of pollen and put it in your mouth or <laughs> well no. it, people do all the time for um 
for allergies. Uh, but it, that's the thing. It sounds like it's going to give you allergies for sure. <laughs> well, it certainly did for me. In the case of the pollen experiences I've had, I remember working at places when the pollen was cloudy in the air and all over your clothes and up yep. and down the driveway. Couldn't oh, yes. wash it off of anything. If you get in, in, I think the place though where I run into it the most is in the car. Because if you left the door open for any reason <laughs> or the window cracked, maybe you have a bad seal. You get into your car later and it's all over the place. It's in it's on the dash, it's on the wheel. You touch it and you you see your fingerprints everywhere. It's so weird. You turn on the the machine, the vents, and it blows it into your face, gets into your hair. I just realized something, Joe. You know all this contention we have about mask wearing for coronavirus? Well, yeah. What if they are effective against pollen? Interesting. I don't know the answer to that. The problem is the smallest ones that are most likely the ones that cause allergies are the least likely to be stopped by a mask. But I wonder. Well, yeah, that it would make a significant difference improvement overall. I don't know. Maybe lessen the allergies. That'd be cool. That'd See, my be problem is it gets in my eyes. There's something that blooms and I don't know what it is. And my eyes get all scratchy and red. And then it goes away. It happens every spring. Never, I've never looked to see. But see, that information is also hard to find. It's hard to find information that says, this species is what's blooming now. Because that's not the way things are reported. They report it as in uh, moderate, severe, or light. Yeah, thanks a lot. Or tree <laughs> pollen versus grass pollen versus mold. Okay, great. What species, man? But that is very difficult to come by. And, and one of the reasons for that is that the... Okay, let's talk about how they do pollen counts. Yeah, please One do, of, because that doesn't sound very feasible. Well, what they do is they pass air across a bunch of plastic rods that are coated in a sticky oil, and the pollen sticks to it. And somehow they wash that off, and they, they will do, they'll take a sample of that and count the pollen grains there, and then they'll multiply by the amount of liquid left, and they divide by per square meter, per, sorry, per cubic meter. So its pollen count is measured in pollen per cubic meter. And that's not down to the species. That's just pollen. And so it's very rough approximations when they break it down, because I don't think many people are willing to go through the trouble of identifying it down to the species. But if you know what's blooming in your area, then you can get a pretty rough idea, maybe, um, of what's blooming. So I'm looking at weather.com right now, right? The, the risk is moderate. And pollen breakdown, tree pollen, high, tomorrow, high, Saturday, high, grass pollen, low, tomorrow, none, Saturday, low, ragweed pollen, today, low, tomorrow, and Saturday, none, because ragweed's in the fall. Hmm. But, okay, that's kind of generic, and if that's all you need to know if you have allergy problems, but I'm a nerd, man. I want to know more than that. I go to uh, Atlanta Allergy and Asthma, not that I go there, but I go to their website, and they have pollen counts. Did I put that in the show notes? I think I did. Looking now. Yep. Found okay. It. Click on that. Got it. A lot of allergy pollen and mold activity. Got yes. it. Yes. So get it broken down between trees and grass and weeds and mold. Okay. Fair enough. And see, so right now the trees is high and it says juniper, pine, oak, birch, and elm. Oh, that's interesting. So that's, that's good to know. And that right there might help identify some of the pollen if you know what colors of pollen and you can guess pretty good. But beneath that, you see how they have each day the, um, the month and the calendar, and there's a number on each day, 464, 
37371. Yeah. That is pollen grains per cubic meter. I thought it was the pollen's batting average. Oh. Yeah, exactly. So on Wednesday, it was only 71, but on Monday, it was 464. Whew. It, it swings and depends upon rain, depends upon humidity, depends upon what's blooming, what's, what's pollinating at that time. And all these different species of trees, and they're all slightly different. And so instead of having one big pollen burst, we have several months of rolling pollen. <laughs> oh, yeah. And notice there's no pines yet. No. no pine. Oh, you know, there is some pine. But see, they didn't break it down into, you know, pine, oak, birch, elm, and juniper. Well, how much of that is each? I don't know. Right. We're, we're told all of them together get it up into the high. Yeah. Right. Because they're trees. And, and granted, that's consumer information. I'm sure someone out there, some graduate student or some laboratory is keeping track of all these things. Just I haven't been able to find it easily using Google. It'll, I'm going to come across it someday. Someone has a blog. There is some pollen nerd out there who's doing this and, and announcing it to the world. And hopefully they live in, in West Georgia because if they're in Arizona or Colorado or Michigan, it'll be completely worthless to me. So I have a question. Right here, right here it's got the pollen counts and the, the, for the grass and, like I said, the weeds and uh, what is its relationship to mold? What do you mean? What's the relationship to mold? Because they record that information as well. Yeah, so there's the mold activity right underneath the pollen activities. Well, because mold also is an allergen. The mold spores specifically, a lot of people have problems with them. So they also track that on this allergy website. Okay. I mean, the National Weather Service, because now I'm paying attention to weather because I set up a beehive with basically a well, weather yeah. monitoring station in my beehive. So I'm right. looking at the weather every day and seeing when it's going to rain and stuff like that. But the, the National Weather Service twice this week put out a weather alert for Georgia. And I said, that's weird. It's not even going to rain. What? Well, it was a low humidity warning. And they said, be careful. Don't start fires. Because in the middle of the day, the humidity dropped precipitously. And at night, it goes back up to you know 80% or so. And then during the day, it was, it was dropping really far down, which is probably why your lips have been dry this week. And maybe your eyes have been a little gritty. Oh, yeah. Well, it's not necessarily because of pollen. It's because it's been so dry, which is strange for us. I mean, Georgia is like you know the humid capital of the world. And come July, I'm not going to want to live here because there's going to be so much moisture in the air. Ugh. But so uh, yeah, I like my job and I like where I live. None of us are going to. I'm not complaining. I wouldn't complain because God has been very merciful to me. And it'd be <laughs> very foolish of me to complain. I'm just saying <laughs> there won't be any pollen like that in heaven. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I have to agree. So looking at pollen, it's got really cool shapes and it's beautiful. Oh, it sure is. Yeah. And some of it looks like... And it's like, even interesting as a substance when you see it all over the bees and they're buzzing around. It's pretty cute for a little yeah. bug. Yeah. But some of it looks like spike balls and some of it looks like lentils. And some of it is like a, um, a, three egg, a three-legged boomerang. And some of it is kind of oblong and some of it is very round. It's, there's all different types of pollen. And it's a, just a really cool thing to consider. Now, looking at the spike balls... And the little teeny round lentils, which of those do you think gives you allergies? Uh, the spiky ones, maybe? Because it clings, it gets stuck on stuff. And it looks like it'd be irritating, right? Yeah, it prickly, yeah. kind of like holding a pine cone in your nose. 
Yes, exactly. That would be uncomfortable. And this is exactly what most people think, but that's totally wrong. In fact, wow. most huh. of the pollen that you see, that the yellow dust on your car that we talked about, and, and the, the, the stuff you see, most of that is too large to produce an allergic reaction. It doesn't matter. It's the little stuff. And what we're allergic to isn't the spikes. That's mostly um, uh, uh, cellulose. What we're allergic to is the protein content. Interesting. Huh. And so it's got to be small enough to get upper nose, inner lungs stuck in our throat without being cleared easy. And it has to have a protein content that's accessible to our immune system. And it's not at all what I expected. And so pine pollen, people aren't really allergic to pine pollen. I can't say that because I could be wrong, but it's not a typical allergen. It's the little stuff that gets you. Huh, okay. And ragweed is just a kind of weed. Is there a noticeable difference between the shape of the weed variety versus the floral variety and the tree variety? No, no, I, I don't variety? think there's any rule of thumb there at all. I'm mean, different, mm -hmm. similar species, okay. like species within the same genus, will probably have very similar shape pollen, not necessarily the same color pollen. But uh, I don't think, and I could be wrong, but I don't think there's a rule of thumb saying, you know, trees make this and grasses, well, grasses are different. Grass pollen would be easily identifiable compared to tree pollen. But um, I don't think there's a, a consistent trend across the plant kingdom. To, is to me, I, I see it as like liquid gold before it's been through the refinery and comes out the other side to become honey. So what is the process that turns pollen into honey? Oh, actually, remember, nectar is made into honey. Pollen is bee food. Oh, okay, yeah. That, that okay. valve they have at the base of their first stomach can grind the pollen up and they get a nice proteinaceous uh, substance to eat. But pollen does get into honey. I think, I'm not sure if we talked about this in an old episode or not. I don't remember. Well, I know it has to because we got some honey, local honey, last year from a good uh, beekeeper. And mm -hmm. the honey was distinctly uh, purpley and tasted of kudzu. Oh, I, I'm, I'm hoping to get kudzu honey. I would love that. Um, but it, um, it's not necessarily the color of the pollen. There's also other chemicals in nectar that can be colored. Oh, okay. The honey does get pollen in it. And you can take honey, dilute it in water, and look at it under a microscope and identify plants in there. Basically, what happened was uh, 10 to 20 years ago, a foreign country named China <clears throat> um, was using some pesticides or herbicides that were illegal in the United States, and it was getting into the honey supply. So they said, the American government said, sorry, China, you can't export any more honey to us. Well, the next year, the honey export from Vietnam exploded in popularity. And we're getting tons and tons and tons of honey from Vietnam. Wait a minute. They didn't have that large a honey industry. So sure enough, they looked at the pollen and the honey. No, this is Chinese honey. So a couple years later, the pollen industry from, uh, sorry, the honey industry in India started exporting to us a lot more honey than they used to. And either they built up their industries so they could make more honey, or some people suspect that some Chinese companies realize if you warm honey up and you ultra filter it, it takes out the pollen. And if you mix that with Indian honey, it'll have Indian plant pollen in it, and you can't tell the difference. <laughs> Cheating. Buy local. In fact, Subi honey and those, those main brand honeys, I would never buy those off the shelf. 
That's not honey. Good to know. That, that could even be yeah. half corn syrup or more, and you would never know it. Ew. And since there's no definition of what honey is, because honey varies in its in its sugar content, its water content. It, it, well, how do you define what honey is? Yeah, so you say when there's no definition of what honey is, I would have just thought that the definition would be it is the, the sticky stuff that bees make <laughs> that comes out of a hive. Yeah, you think so. But if, if you mix other sugar sources in it, you can't tell it's not bee sugar. If you had a, a less expensive source of, of sugar or something that tastes sugary, you could mix it in there and no one would know. And, and plus, organic honey is very hard to come by because bees, they don't know if they're on an organic farm or not. They fly for miles. It's almost impossible to guarantee honey is organic. And almost all of the commercially produced honey is going to standard farms and fields and things where farmers are using pesticides and herbicides. But pollen is something you can use to identify the source and the season of honey. And that's just really cool. Yeah. Wow. So I didn't realize that. I thought it was more of a linear progression from, you know, let's take pollen, mix it with our bee spit, let it cure for a while, maybe digest it in the cud once or twice, and now you've got honey. But that's nope. not that simple. Nope. Interesting to know. Bee, bee bread has a lot of pollen in it. So they'll feed, feed bee bread um, to uh, babies or over winter if they're lucky on some of that. And that's a high protein uh, diet for them. Interesting. Okay. Well, I'll be saying my prayers at night that I, uh, I don't die of pollen, <laughs> as we usually do. Well, we talked. I had three new re- uh, recordings on my Beehive monitoring device at 1930, 20, 100 hours, and 2030 hours. I got three new readings. Woohoo! That is awesome. <laughs> Have you thought of a name for your Beehive? Seriously, it needs to be called like the Ark or something. Hmm. I'll think of one gonna have to workshop that name yeah that'd be cool all right maybe maybe people in the comments can can suggest names for my my beehive exterminator uh, my beehive or anator <laughs> <laughs> well thank you everybody for joining us on this quest and if you found this episode interesting in any way consider sharing it with your friends and family and if you want to dig deeper into the topic of pollen there are some good show notes and you can find that stuff that Rob introduced on the website, which is nightowl.fm. And for this podcast, that is slash equinox slash 48 for the episode. The show notes are also with this episode if you subscribe to the show in an app on your phone. And you should also check out Biblical Genetics, which is Rob's other show, his project, and he's put out a new episode. Biblical Genetics is also available on Facebook and YouTube where you can watch the video and join the discussion in the comments. And if you want to catch up with me, I'm at JCS Darnell on Twitter, or you can find my other podcast, which is HiFi at nightowl.fm slash HiFi. Until next time, goodbye, Rob. Goodbye, Joe. You've been listening to Equinox.
I feel like I, sh- I need to sneeze. <laughs> All this talk of the pollen, I just, my body has this revulsion. It can't help. I have a, a thing of Kleenex sitting right next to me at my desk, and my nose is not quite as, as um, open as I would like it. I don't know if it's the time of year or what. I've had some off-again, on-again sinus issues in Amber 2 in the last month. Yeah, that's probably pollen. Yeah. 